0: She is she is strong, she is strong, she is true, she is true. She is brave, she is brave, she is bold, she is you. She is sure, she is strong, she is strong, she is true, she is true. She is brave, she is brave, she is bold, she is bold, she is you. You're tuned in to Word of Mom Radio here on the Word of Mom Media Network. Hi everybody!
1: Welcome back to our show. We're an open book. My name is Chris McMurray.
2: And I'm Gene McMurray.
1: He's my husband. He'll be behind the scenes making sure everything is running smoothly.
2: As always, I'll be telling you what I think all along the way.
1: I have no doubt. On this show, we discuss those difficult situations that a lot of families go through, but are often not talked about. Here we will, because like we said, we're an open book. In our relationship, we've dealt with marriage, divorce, remarriage to each other, addiction, sobriety, losing a business because of injury, and the ultimate sorrow of losing our son. Hey,
2: everyone, and thanks for joining us. Hey, Chris.
1: Hey, how are you? I haven't seen you in a while. I'm doing
2: good. It's April. Can you
1: believe it's here already? I know. I love this time of year because it's springtime.
2: Springtime. Do you remember April 14th, 1985?
1: Of course I do. That was our very first wedding day. You know, it would have been 37 years if we didn't divorce.
2: Eight years. Eight-year break. That's right. Hey, the second time is going so much better. What do you think the secret is?
1: I think our secret is our eight-year divorce. You might be right. Hey,
2: episode four is upon us. How do you think we're doing so far?
1: I think we're doing really well. Do you think anyone's listening? You know, that's the million-dollar
2: question for anybody who puts content out on the Internet. You never know who's out there.
1: No, I know that. Hey, we have friends
2: and family that listen for sure.
1: Well, they are our biggest fans. Not only are they loyal, but
2: they also spread the word, and we're reaching a broader circle with each episode.
1: Yeah, every once in a while, someone out of the blue will tell us that they listen, and that's pretty cool. So
2: some people are listening for sure. And that's nice. And we want to thank whoever it is that's listening. But producing a podcast is a lot harder than I thought.
1: I know. It is a lot of work. You listen to a podcast and you think it's just people talking and having a good time. But if you're going to have a message, it takes preparation and lots of practice.
2: If you've been with us since the very first podcast, you're getting to know us a little bit. And I can only imagine what our listeners think of me so far between the rehabs and talking about alcoholism and addiction, I don't come off that great.
1: I know, I know. It has not been that easy putting all that stuff out there. You mean the stuff about me? Yeah, yeah, of course I do. But you know what? You do make a nice comeback later in the story. So please, folks, keep listening. It's going to take a few episodes to get there, but I'm not that bad. It's not that bad.
2: <laughs> Whose idea was it anyway to be such an open book? I
1: don't No, what were we thinking? We thought it would be a nice little hobby, something we can do together. Maybe bungee jumping would have been less stressful. Let's talk about
2: this a little bit. Why has it been such a hard process?
1: Well, because we're rehashing a lot of painful stuff.
2: You know, I've been finding that as we put these podcasts together, there has definitely been a lot of tension between us to the point that we have to get up, walk away, and cool off every once in a while.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because old wounds are being reopened. We're remembering what those early days were like. But if we're going to make this a worthwhile project,
2: that's the price that's got to be paid. Think about it. The great personal stories that we've all read are all brutally honest. Maya Angelou didn't hold back in her memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, No, she told everything, her whole story. I am sure there was stuff in there she wanted to leave behind closed doors, but she didn't. And that's at least one of the reasons it's a classic. Anne Frank, Malcolm X, Sylvia Plath, they all laid it on the line in their stories. That's why they all had such an impact.
1: Whoa, slow down, big guy. So now we comparing ourselves to Maya Angelou and Anne Frank, maybe we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves.
2: Well, not really, and I hope it doesn't come across that way. The point I'm trying to make is you can't cherry pick facts. We must talk about both the good and the bad, and if that brings up uncomfortable feelings, we have got to realize that that's part of the process, right?
1: Absolutely. But you know what? As difficult as it is, I'm proud of our story. Somehow we got from there to here, and that's what makes our story worth telling.
2: We both grew up with the credo. Don't air your dirty laundry in public.
1: Well, look at us now. Our laundry is out there for the world to see.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of dirty laundry out there. But speaking of laundry... Oh, tell me. Did I ever tell you the story about the year I bought my mother a clothesline for Christmas? Yeah, what were you? You were about four, right? No, I was probably 10 or 11. That makes it so much worse.
1: If, if you were a little boy... I could understand, you know, but ten or eleven, your poor mom worked so hard taking care of you and your sisters, getting us everything you need and want for Christmas, and she opens up a piece of rope for her present.
2: I got her the clips as well, and it was a very practical gift, I'll have you know. (laughs) Hey, there are a million people out there with with their own dirty laundry who can relate to our struggles. If we can talk about our troubles without shame or embarrassment. It may encourage others to do so as well.
1: Well, I hope so, because that is the gift.
2: As we do in every episode, Chris reads an excerpt from our book, Live, Laugh, Lie, and we'll give you details later on on how to get that. This reading has to do with us starting a family and the joys and challenges we faced in that particular time. So without any more words from me, why don't we get started, Chris, with the reading?
1: All right. Thank you. This one is chaptered, Starting a Family. Our daughter, Kim, was born on December 19th, 1986. She was a beautiful, healthy baby, and I loved being a mom. I loved everything about it. Although looking back, like any new mom, I didn't have a clue to what I was doing. I would often say that it was harder to get my driver's license. I had to study and practice to eventually pass that test, while the hospital just handed me this baby. But I loved motherhood, and I loved her. I had a family now, and I was so proud. It was important to me to be a good mom. As a child, I often felt alone within my own family, and I was determined not to repeat the same patterns. As much as I enjoyed my new role as mother, my marriage was getting shaky. As was inevitable, Jane began drinking again. At first, he would sneak it, but then I would find the bottles. When I would confront him with the evidence, he would deny it and twist the situation around so much so that I started to think I might be losing my mind. It was happening more and more. To help with the finances, I started babysitting. I didn't want to leave Kim, so this was a perfect solution. During this time, I was Catholic. I was raised Catholic and even attended Catholic school for a while, but I didn't attend church regularly. However, on one of those rare Sundays that I did attend, I saw an advertisement in the bulletin placed by a family who needed a babysitter three days a week. The little girl, Megan, was 14 months. It seemed perfect. Extra money and a friend for Kim. I got the job, and that was the beginning of Chris's Kids Family Daycare. I really loved caring for the girls and had a great time planning fun activities like going to the park or doing arts and crafts projects with them. Kim and Megan played really well together, and it was a nice fit. Megan's parents and I became good friends as well. The money I was earning was helping, especially as living with Gene was getting difficult. He was drinking a lot, and there were many days when he called in sick. You can't sell cars when you're not at work. I was finding all of this scary and overwhelming. Kim was about seven months old when I once again confronted Gene about his drinking with an ultimatum. If he wanted to keep his family, then he needed to get help. It was that simple. He agreed and soon went to rehab for 30 days. During this time, I took care of everything. I took care of Kim, our home, and also worked at the daycare. I was so scared, scared of my uncertain marriage and of my family's now uncertain future. On the weekends, Kim and I would visit Gene at the facility. He seemed very hopeful and promised he would do all he could to stay sober. Being in rehab is the easy part. The work begins when you return home. It's important for the alcoholic to attend Alcoholic Anonymous meetings several times a week to maintain sobriety. For myself, I began attending Al-Anon meetings for those whose lives are impacted by an alcoholic. This support system was vital to me, and I went once a week for many years. I learned so much about myself. I had to learn how to set boundaries, how to self-love, how to think and react in a healthy way without being a caretaker, an enabler or a people pleaser. I actually reached a point in my life where I was grateful to have married an alcoholic because it gave me personal insight I might never have had. It has been a great blessing in my life. However, after a couple of months, Gene stopped attending AA meetings. He claimed he didn't feel connected to the group and insisted he could do it on his own. I tried to stay hopeful, but I was really scared. Gene did not drink for about two years, and during that time, we had our son, Scott, who was born on November 29, 1988. After a somewhat difficult pregnancy and delivery, we were thrilled when he arrived. In my 24th week of pregnancy, I went into preterm labor, followed by a week-long hospital stay, ordered bed rest, and prescribed medications to halt contractions. Twelve weeks later, Scott arrived. Labor was fast and furious, totaling less than two hours. When he arrived, I noticed right away that he was blue. I remember asking the nurse about this, but she immediately gave me a shot, and I soon fell asleep. The next day when I awoke, the nurse brought him to me. He wasn't blue anymore, but he did have scratches all over his face. I was told that the umbilical cord had wrapped around his neck. I think the scratches came from him trying to break free. I was so excited to hold and finally meet him. I knew he was in a big rush to get here, and I promised to be a good mom to him. He clasped my finger, and I fell madly in love. My life was full. Scott was a very happy baby, and by the time he was five months old, he was crawling and getting into everything. I could not take my eyes off of him for a minute. He was so curious and active. It would not be unusual for me to find him wrapped in the television wires or eating out of the dog bowl. By the time he was one year old, he had already learned how to climb out of his crib. One morning, I woke up to find him missing from his crib. He was gone. In a panic, I started searching every room, convinced that he had been kidnapped. Then I heard a noise downstairs. I flew down the stairs, and there was Scott, sitting on the couch and eating a cookie. When he saw me, he smiled. How did he do this? I looked around and saw that he pushed a kitchen chair over to reach the counter where the cookies were kept. But how did he get out of the crib? That night, after we put Kim and Scott to bed, Jean and I waited outside his door. We watched him stand up and look around. Then we saw his little legs swing over the crib. And once over, he jumped down. Happy with himself, he scooted out of the room and slid down the steps on his belly, feet first. Jean and I followed him down and caught him startled he smiled we brought him back upstairs and lowered the mattress in his crib so he could not escape I could not believe the mischief he could get into I always believed someone was watching over him because sometimes his antics were downright scary one episode really sticks out in my mind Scott was not yet two years old and the daycare was in full swing Kim Scott and Megan were playing in the living room while I was speaking with her mom Phyllis in the kitchen Megan had been in my daycare for close to three years, and it was her little sister Katie's first day. As Phyllis was going over Katie's schedule, I heard a strange noise, screech. We stopped talking and I heard it again, screech. We walked into the living room and all I saw was Scott's head. He had removed the fireplace grate and lowered himself down the ash pit. In one quick motion, I grabbed him, my heart pounding, If I hadn't come in when I did, he would have gone all the way down and probably suffocated. After that little moment of excitement, Phyllis left and it was back to work. Going out to stores with Scott could be quite the adventure as well. I never knew what could happen. Again, if I got distracted for even a second, he would be gone. One day while we were food shopping, I got caught up comparing prices. Of course, when I looked down, Scott had disappeared. Since this had happened before, I didn't panic. I went up and down the aisles, looking for him, calling for him. As I was walking through the frozen section, something caught my eye. There was Scott, sitting in the case next to the piece, happily waving to everyone who passed. All I could do was smile, putting him back in the cart and headed to the checkout. While waiting my turn, I tried to think of any other mom who had days like these. I couldn't come up with a single person. Kim and Scott's personalities were very different. Kim was quiet, while Scott was very outgoing. Kim thought about consequences, while Scott was very impulsive. They were both social and enjoyed the many friendships formed in the daycare, which was like an extended family. Since Kim was one of the oldest kids, she liked to help with the babies. Scott wanted to make everyone laugh and sometimes tease them to the point of tears. He was very active and would always find something to get into. Sometimes I would joke with my friends, saying that if Scott wasn't mine, I wouldn't watch him. Every day was an adventure for Scott, and being his mom, it was for me too. I would try to predict what he might do, but sometimes I just couldn't. I learned that I just had to go with it and hope that it all turned out okay, and it usually did then.
2: Wow, Chris, thanks for the reading. The early days of marriage are a whole new world. Our lives change when we get married. What were the biggest challenges for you as a young wife?
1: Yeah, there was a lot because we didn't live with each other before we were married, so everything was new. But I was so surprised at how much compromise was involved. Everything was a compromise. Even the question of what do you want for dinner becomes a compromise.
2: Misunderstandings were commonplace and we could no longer just go our separate ways, go home and shut the door behind us. We were home and had to deal with each other and work things out.
1: That's more compromising. And another lesson we learned was that there's a saying, don't ever go to bed angry with each other. Well, we tried that one night, and it didn't go so well. We stayed up until 2 a.m. rehashing the argument and getting more tired and more annoyed. So from then on, we realized it's okay to go to bed angry. A Good sleep puts everything in perspective. What did you think about the early days of marriage?
2: Well, I had a hard time understanding how my behaviors had such an effect on you. I just rationalized that how drinking or gambling, it was my business, but it had an impact on the entire family. That was a hard lesson for me to learn. A lot of people don't understand how much goes into just getting along. It can be so
1: hard. It is. You're not kidding. Me and my friends will always say the two best kept secrets are, one is how hard marriage is, and two is how hard it is to raise kids.
2: So you talked about that a lot with your friends?
1: All the time. How many of them? of my friends. Did I discuss this with you? Yeah. yeah. Literally every single one. Really? How, how do you not know about this? Yeah. Didn't you have these conversations with your guy friends? No.
2: Guys prefer denial. And uh,
1: that's why we talk about sports all the time. Oh, so, I know. But when we say that marriage and raising kids are hard and hard work, that doesn't mean we don't love our families fiercely. But when you have little kids, you don't sleep. You still have to get up for work. There's still all the household chores that have to be completed. It's exhausting. And moms don't get six days.
2: I know I was there to help. But childcare and housework does fall on the wife. And I think that may be changing a little bit. But let's be honest about that. The wife does a lot
1: of the work. Absolutely. And a lot has changed now. And I do see that in the young families that I'm with now. And the dads and husbands do so much more than our generation did. So that is good. But also, if we had to do it all over again in a second, we would. Because the love of family outweighs everything.
2: Those are a couple of the big challenges that we face as a young couple. And they need to be dealt with. But I think it's the little differences we had, the day-to-day habits that our new spouse had, that can really get on your nerves and drive you up a wall.
1: Really? <laughs>
2: For instance, I always like to listen to the radio when I went to sleep at night. And
1: I like it quiet.
2: That may sound like a little thing, but it was kind of big to me. But of course, it was an easy fix to that one. That was earphones.
1: Yeah. Did I have any habits that rubbed you the wrong way? <laughs> Well, Wait a minute, You only how many are you looking for? Two will be plenty, right. thank you. Okay, I'll give you two right off okay, the top thanks. of my Okay, right head. off the top of your head. First, the sneezing, the sneezing. People have thought you were having some horrific attack, and often I had to explain, no, this is just his way of sneezing. And also, you never, ever close the cabinets in the kitchen. It's just as easy to push it shut as it is to open it. I think it's easier to push it shut. Okay,
2: so you want to get into this, huh? I guess so now. I have a question for you. Who taught you how to make a bed?
1: Nobody. I taught myself.
2: (laughs) You taught yourself, huh? (laughs) Did you go to that
1: same school for folding laundry? Yes, I did. But after um, many complaints on your end, we did come to a fair compromise. And what is that? I just do it. Exactly. (laughs) If you complain long enough, then that job becomes yours. But I often wondered, how come you never, ever complain about how I clean the bathroom?
2: Because I am no fool, (laughs) and I believe that you do a wonderful job cleaning the bathroom. Why why fix it if it ain't broken?
1: That's right, right. But just when you think that you got compromise figured out, along comes kids.
2: There are different views on how to raise children, and we each had our own ideas Mm -hmm. on what was best for our kids. What does discipline look like?
1: Yeah, will we introduce religion to them? If so, how?
2: How do we monitor their diet and media consumption?
1: And a million other worries that have been keeping parents up at night forever. And then there's just the common day-to-day events that have to be hashed out.
2: I remember one of those. Yeah, I'm sure you (laughs) have plenty of them. Remember when I brought Scott for his first haircut and brought him back
1: with a mullet cut? I was so mad. I was so mad because I just wanted a cute little boy haircut, not a little mullet. Thank (laughs) God hair grows out, and I think we both took him for future haircuts.
2: You got to admit, though, he was the cutest little mullet around. He was a cute mullet. (laughs) With all that goes on in a young family, the time comes, though, when a couple needs to reconnect with each other. Remember when Kim, our firstborn, was just an infant? and your parents offered to watch her for a weekend?
1: Yeah, they were so excited to have her, and so were we to get away and have some fun, just the two of us.
2: We were headed to Vermont to ski. And to sleep. But when it came time to drop her off, it wasn't that easy. It was really hard to leave her at your mom's. We knew she would be taken care of, but it was still hard to let her go.
1: Yeah, and all we talked about that weekend was our little girl. Wondering what she was doing. Did she miss us too? In the end, we couldn't wait to get back to her.
2: And now she's all grown up and married. It goes by so fast. Didn't our parents warn us about that?
1: Yeah, everybody says that it goes by so fast. But I remember walking around the house trying to quiet a crying baby and thinking, time's not going by so fast. But it really does.
2: And the lesson in that is...
1: I think that we need to enjoy each stage of your child's life, play with them, laugh with them, listen to them, and most importantly, love them.
2: I think that goes back to the conversation you had with your friends on how difficult raising a family can be.
1: Yeah. And you know what? This should be parenting classes because we don't know what we're doing. We're handed these babies and off you go. You just have to do your best and hope for the best. I used to say that when our kid's therapist calls me, I guess I know how I did.
2: Yeah, they'll tell you. <laughs> sure will. As many of you know, we wrote the book, Live, Laugh, Fly, after our son Scott died. On April 27th, it will be 11 years since he passed, and we want to address it.
1: Yeah, my first thought is how hard it is to believe it's been 11 years since Scott passed. It's still surreal. It still is a day when my brain and heart collide.
2: I understand what you're saying about that feeling, but it's just so hard to describe. Most days we're able to function with our loss, but certain days we can't. His anniversary and his birthday are two of those days. So as April 27th approaches, what's the plan this year?
1: Well, we're going to go for a walk on the beach in the morning, and then I'm going to try to work in the afternoon.
2: Wow, you never worked on his anniversary before.
1: I never felt like I was able to before. But I want to try. Now, that doesn't mean it will actually happen. We'll have to see what happens. But I will try. Day. But I'm going to try. Right. But rest, be assured that I'll still be eating a lot of melted cheese and chocolate.
2: Maybe I should go to Costco. Start loading up. <laughs> I think I should. Hey, uh, I think the walk on the beach is a great idea. Will give us a bit of quiet time to think about Nan or Scott. We always try to do something like that. Sometimes we go to a movie we think he would have loved or anything that he would have liked doing.
1: Yeah, and sometimes we have his favorite meal for dinner. Ice cream and Gushers. (laughs) That was his favorite dessert and snack, but no, chicken parm. Oh, yeah, he liked that too. Yeah. One last story
2: before we close the podcast.
1: Yeah, well, it was our second Christmas after Scott passed, and we were in Charleston, and this is how we wanted to honor him that Christmas day. I had ordered three sky lanterns, one for each of us. You know, the ones where you light a fire in the base and the hot air takes them away? Well, my plan was to put a message in them and send them to him in the sky. Then I started
2: thinking, launching fireballs in a million dollar beach community is probably not the best idea you ever had. (laughs) And it's probably illegal anyway. And a quick Google search confirmed that it was but I knew this was going to be an unpopular point of view. So I suggested helium balloons, but it was Christmas day.
1: It was Christmas day and all the stores are closed. So we had no balloons. So another compromise, we went for a walk on the beach. And as we were driving to the beach on the way, we saw a closed car dealership. And in that dealership were some helium balloons on several cars. So we pulled in quickly Grabbed some scissors from the glove compartment, and what did we do? We stole three balloons. We stole three balloons. We shoved them into the car, and as we were driving to the beach, though, I started laughing, and I thought Scott would have loved this.
2: Yeah, we all we all wrote our message to him on them—me, you, and Kim. Yeah. And launched them to the sky. Yeah. And I might add that it was a very windy day when we released the balloons, and they took off like crazy headed for a few multi-million dollar beach homes. So the balloons was a good decision.
1: Yeah, because that actually, those fireballs would have.
2: <laughs> fireballs could have caused some damage. It
1: could have, yeah.
2: So that's the fourth episode in the can.
1: In the can. Chris, tell us one
2: more time. Tell us about the book.
1: Yes. Live Last Fly by Christina McMurray. And, and Eugene
2: McMurray and Jean. Jean McMurray. Don't forget about me. Well, I
1: can never forget about you. <laughs> And it's available on Amazon and 100% of proceeds will benefit children's cancer programs.
2: But if you're searching for the book on Amazon, it's best to just look for Christina McMurray. She is the primary author. Anybody have heard anything in this, this episode that resonated or they'd like to comment on? We would love to hear it from you. So down below in the comment box, let us know what you think. And as we sign off, the same way we do every time.
1: Yes, always remember that love, love never, never dies.
2: dies. Bye everybody.
0: She is sure. She is sure. She is strong. She is